Never before in history, never after, there was a situation in which all of Klal Yisrael, the entire Jewish nation, was threatened by death. There have been situations before and after in which a large portion of the population was put at, was at risk of being annihilated, exterminated, or even portion of the community was destroyed in different countries, but never before or after the story of Purim, there was a situation in which all of the Yidden were at risk. Simple reason, there was a king, who was Maishel Bekipa, he was a dictator who actually conquered and was ruling over all of the known world, which means whatever part of the world was discovered, he was in charge of. That means that any Jew, wherever they were, were subjected to the Xaira of Haman that was sealed by Achashverosh. Now, for the Jews to deserve such a harsh punishment or at least threat, they must have done something really, really bad. It's not just irregular misbehavior kind of thing that calls for Xaira, that then whatever is going to happen and is going to change the Xaira. We're talking about total inhalation. And that's very drastic and extreme. What is it that they've done that could possibly call for such a punishment? That is a question that has left the Talmudim of Avishim and Bayochai perplexed. And they asked him, Israel I ask him why were the enemies of the Jews of that generation sentenced to annihilation? They asked Rabbi Shimon They are the Talmudim and they ask him a question. In other words, as I said before, why is it? What is it that they've done so bad that calls not just for a punishment, but for all of Kalal Israel to be completely destroyed? In, I, I, no, this is a question that I'm asking now, is that why, why the Gemara records the question as why did the enemies of the Jews were sentenced to death, when we know that in the story of Purim it was the Jews who were sentenced to death. The Talmudim asked that question, yeah. Simply because anytime you're talking about something terrible about Jews, you don't say the Jews. Okay, as if to say, better this should happen to the enemies of the Jews. You know that, generally speaking, we don't... Anytime you bring something bedibur, it brings it one step closer to the Maiseh. There's Machshava, Diburu, Maiseh, right? Machshava is already... There is inside Machshava, Esias, Machshava. And that's the reason why Machshava could lead to Dibur. Because within Machshava, there's already Dibur. It's called Ila Ve'alul Sibom Suvav. And that's already bringing it one step closer to Maiseh, to action. So we don't want... We don't want to have a situation in which we mention something very negative about the Jews, even the Dibur. So the question was, why are the Jews of the generation of Ahasuerosh punished to be exterminated? We can't even say that, to say such a word, even in a question form. So we say, why were the enemies of the Jews sentenced to be exterminated? You understand that? Maybe, okay. So... Um, Rabbi Shon Bar Yochai says, "Amar lahem imru liatem." You tell me, 
What do you suggest the answer would be? Abishim Barachai says, you ask a good question. Suggest an answer. So they suggest the following answer. Because they have rejoiced and, and, and benefited from the Seuda of this Rasha, who is the Rasha. Achashverosh, she made the Sude, invited the Jews, they went and they enjoyed themselves, and because of that they should all be killed. Rabbi has a problem with this answer, in addition to other questions we may have and we'll ask later. The Jews of Shushan are the ones who went to the party. So the Gzeire should have been on the Jews of Shushan. Why shall Kolaylam Kuloi? Why the Jews all over the world, should be sentenced to death? For the Avera of those Jews who lived in Shushan. They said, then, you give us the answer. We ask you the question, you don't like our answer, give us an answer. He told them because they bowed down to an idol. Bowing, bowing down to an idol, when all of the Jews bow down to an idol, is the only situation that actually warrants extermination. We found in the Torah that when the Yidden all bowed down to the Egel, what did Hashem say to Moshe? I will destroy them. And you know which word he used? Va'achalem. Va'achalem klia, the same shoyresh klia, which is the question that Talmidim Roshbi asked. Klia. Va'achalem. When the Jews all together bowed down to the Egel, it was, it was calling, that was a, the appropriate response to it was extermination. Moshe Rabbeinu pleaded, and therefore Hashem recanted and accepted their, you know, to forgive them. Over here they all bowed down to an idol, so therefore, in the same way that they all bowed down to an idol, at the time of the Egel, and they were threatened by extermination, destruction, so too now they all bow down to an idol and they all are subject to clear. Which idol are we talking about? So, instinctively we are going to say the idol of Haman had an idol on him. Haman told everyone, bow down to me, but Mordechai said he won't do that, right? So, Ah, again, say it's, that's not everyone. So if we are going to say Haman, then it's the same, same answer that says, same question that has In the same way that only the Jews of Shushan came to the Seuda and enjoyed it, only the Jews who were in the proximity of Haman, meaning the Jews of Shushan, are the one who bowed down to him. So then we don't have again a situation in which all of Kalal Yisrael bowed down to an idol, just like Badechet Egel. Yes? Okay, so Rashi says, Bimei Nebuchadnezzar. In the days of Nebuchadnezzar, which means, you know history, right? Nebuchadnezzar exiled all the Jews, he gathered them all in a valley called Bik As Dura, the valley of Dura. Over there he made a big, big statue of himself. He asked everybody to bow down. All the Yidden got scared because he said, if you're not going to bow down, I'll kill you. They all bowed down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol in the Bikas Dura. Hanana Mishel Vazaya said, they won't bow down. They were thrown into the fire. They came out alive. All right. 
that all of Klal Yisrael bowed down together to an idol. Exactly as it was in the same time, in the time of Chet HaEgel. Difference is that Chet HaEgel, Moshe Rabbeinu pleaded for forgiveness. After the Maiseh of Nebuchadnezzar, nobody pleaded for forgiveness. And they are sentenced to death. Good. Why? They didn't do it right away. This happened, some, this happened some 70 years later or something like that. So why wait, wait for so many years? This is number one. To get punished, yeah. Why they didn't get punished immediately? And, and not just that. Why they didn't get punished, period. Purim was only a threat. That threat wasn't carried out. So if you say that it makes sense that Avodah calls for Kliya, for destruction, and they all did Avodah so then why were they not Take punished? So those are the two questions. The first question, why were they not indeed punished and destroyed? Because they did Avodah all together, all of the Yidden, and we establish that Kliya is the appropriate response to the global communal of Adazara. And if indeed they were supposed to be punished like this, why is the threat only came in 70 years later? So the first question that I just asked is actually asked by the Talmud of Rabbi Yochai. They're asking Rabbi Shumba Yochai the question. Let's read inside. Amru loy v'chim asopanim yesh the Talmudim answer Rabbi Shimon Barachai, is there any kind of bribery here? They were sentenced to death. It was an appropriate or legitimate sentence. And at the end, they were saved. Why does Hashem forgive them? Why does Hashem judge them as if he was bribed? Let's look at the answer of Rabbi Shimon Barachai. Omar lahem em lo yasu they only did it for the face, for show. They did not mean to bow down to Avodah Zarah. They did not believe Nebuchadnezzar was Avodah Zarah. They did not believe in this idol as being an Avodah Zarah. They just made believe they bowed down to Avodah Zarah. They bowed down without any heart, without any intention. In their heart, they were one with Hashem. So because they made believe that they were doing Avodah Zarah, I made believe that I was going to kill them. Okay, So here it is, an appropriate punishment that really fits the crime in every form of it. Avadazara calls for extermination. Avadazara was done as a pretend. So the extermination was done as a pretend. It sounds good, but is there any scriptural backup to such a statement? did not afflict from his heart. He only made the people think. This Pasuk in Eichel is talking about the punishment that the Ebeshti gives to the Eden is not because he wants to punish them. He just wants them to do tshuva. And this Pasuk applies to the story of Purim, saying... He had no intention of actually killing them. In the same way that they had no intention of actually doing Avodah Zorah. But he wanted them to do tshuva for whatever they did. So he pretended. Only lepanim. 
He gave the impression that he was going to kill them, and then they did tshuva. This question. The Rif suggests like this. They did Avodah Zarah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu saw right away that it was not intentional. They did a minute, it was just for the form. And after that, they did, after that, he put their death sentence pending, suspended. Let's wait and see what's going to happen. When years later they went back to bow down to an idol with Haman, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, wait a second, you're taking Avodah Zarah much too lightly. You didn't mean it then, you don't mean it now, and you keep on bowing down. We've got to put a stop to that. And the lotion that's used by the Rif is The first Avera woke up. Which means, Kedosh is aware that they did it only for show. So he wasn't going to exterminate them, wasn't going to kill them. But then, when he saw that they're doing it again, then he says, let's, let's ask for payment now for whatever they did the first time. So that's why I waited so many years. The question. Do you think that every time there was a discussion between the Rebbe and Talmidim, it was recorded in the Gemara? We would not have enough paper to print all the discussions the Chachamim spoke with the, Rebbe, with the Rebbe's. Every discussion is recorded in the Gemara is because it's significant, it's because it has validity, even if it's been refuted. Which means, the suggestion of the Talmidim of Yishon Bayochai, that Nehenu Misudasoy Shaloysay Rosho, was enough to call for extermination. That suggestion has been blown away by Rashmi. You think that cannot be the answer. And yet the Gemara records it. Why does the Gemara record it? Because there is legitimacy to it. Because it does make sense. Because in essence it would have been enough for extermination. Rashmi is saying, however, it's Shil Shushan. Which means that even according to Rabbi Shomba Yochai, Rejoicing at the Suda of Achashverosh was enough to kill the Yidden of Shushan. If not the Yidden of the whole world. The fact that the Gemara records such a thing, even though Rashbi says, no, that cannot be the, the ultimate reason, is because there is validity to it. Where is the validity that enjoying Achashverosh's feast calls for extermination? Where do you find this validity? Moreover, as I just said, even according to Rashbi, who says that Nenu Misudasa is enough to kill the Yidden of Shushan, that also needs explanation. So they went to a party, and whatever they did over there calls for death. Where do we find Bichlal? Where do we find Bichlal that somebody who ate Treif and Yain Nesach should be killed? So this is not a halacha. So they didn't have a, whatever the punishment comes, a different Indian. But death is not, is not one of those for somebody who ate Chazer uh, and drank, uh, drank Yain Nesach. They don't get killed, no. They get different kind of things. But, but that's number one. Number two, Bichlal, the food over there was, if somebody wanted to eat kosher, there was kosher food. The Gemara says about Lasso is Kirtzoin Ish Veish, Kirtzoin Haman, Kirtzoin Mordechai. 
Haman has his demands. Mordechai had his demands. The demands of Mordechai, but the meal was that it should be kosher lamahadrin, and there was ashgoche on it. And it was kosher for the one who wanted to. Nobody was forced to drink wine that was not kosher. So that cannot be a reason. If you go further, if you go further, Haman's decree was for children, women, people who didn't necessarily even participate in the Suda social Russia. So how could it be that Nenumi Suda social Russia could at all be a, a legitimate reason for extermination? So the Rif explains something that we all know. Why did he make such a big Suda? Achashverosh was happy because he made an, an, an erroneous cheshben. He thought that in fact the time of the 70 years the Eden was supposed to be in Golus has passed. And there was no Geula. They did not return to Retisrol. They did not rebuild the Besamikdash. So because the 70 years that they were promised to be in Golus has passed and they didn't um, they didn't they were not released from Golus is a proof that they're never going to be released from Golus. They are going to be mine forever. And that's why he took out the Kalim of Besamikdash and he wore the big day Zahav of the Kohen Godel and all the things that the Gemara and the Midrash bring about the about that Suda. That his party was about the, the ultimate destruction that will never be rebuilt. That was the party about. And Achashverosh was rejoicing about the demise of Bnei Israel. And the Bnei Israel went and rejoiced along with them, with him. If they're rejoicing about their own destruction, so then they should be destroyed. That is how the Rif explains the logic of the suggestion of Talmud Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that Nenu Misudasoy Shaloyserasho is enough to call for the whole entire Jewish nation's destruction. Again, the fact that Haman did not spare any individual in his exile, and it was even the small children and so on, and even Jews were in the whole entire world, that punishment for Nenu Misudasoy seems to be disproportionate. Seems to be much too harsh for whatever it is that they do, that they did, even if we say that it was about the destruction of Esamikdash and so on. Rebbe explains what was their thinking. Firstly, Rebbe brings a marshal brought in the Midrash about the Yidden, the survival of the Yidden, which is very, very miraculous throughout all of our, of, of our history. And he says the marshal is there is one lonely sheep who's surrounded by 70 wolves. And naturally the 70 wolves would have eaten that little sheep. If not for the great shepherd who's watching over, it would have been eaten. Klal Yisrael is surrounded by Goim who want to exterminate us. That's all they want to do and they've had plenty of opportunities. And throughout all generations, they've never succeeded. Which is Mamishanes. You see other cultures, religions, ethnic groups have been wiped out. The Eden are still here. Doing the same thing they've been doing over 3,000 years ago when we got the Torah. Why? Because that great shepherd, the Abishta, is watching over us. And those wolves cannot get their way. Now what happens? That, that's what the Midrash says. The Abishai asks the question, what happens if one day the sheep wakes up and says to the shepherd, ah, you, you're being overprotective. I don't need you. 
I'm very safe around these 70 wolves. They've been around me for all these years. They never attacked me. And you're always there watching over me. I don't need you. Please give me some space. And I'm okay with the 70 wolves. All right. The shepherd would then move away. What would happen to the sheep? Within minutes, it would be completely eaten up, devoured by the 70 wolves. Is it a punishment? It's not a punishment. It's a natural consequence. And I'm not playing with the words the way some education teachers would like to say. Call it a consequence and don't call it a punishment. In school, a punishment is a punishment. A consequence is enhancing something else. This is a consequence, not a punishment. The consequence is you fired the security guard, then the wolf is going to eat you up. That's it. You're not punished. That's just what happened. The consequence. Let's apply this to the story of Purim. In the story of Purim, we have the best political situation the Jews, the Jews ever had. Haman was appointed as prime minister. Okay, he was a bad guy, didn't like the Jews. But there was an important minister in the same cabinet who was called Mordechai. Means that Mordechai was an advisor to the king. Before the Xaira of Haman, there was Esther, who was the queen, who was a Jewish queen. And the Jews were doing great. Achashverosh makes a party and he invites them. Not only invites them, he makes sure there is a bunch of mashgichim around the clock checking out that the wine is kosher and everything is fine because Mordechai, his minister, said so. The Jews felt very well protected. They felt safe in this environment. They felt they did not need a shepherd watching them. They went to the party in a way of Nehenu Misudasoi Shalayosoi Rasha. They took pleasure in being invited. Mordechai told them not to go, but Mordechai made sure that if some people go, they would have kosher food to eat. They felt protected because they felt that the king, never mind Mordechai, the king is inviting us. They felt protected by Achashverosh. They don't need the shepherd. They don't need the Abish's protection. Times have changed. We live in a, in, in a safe, we have we are a safe era. We have a, a, a king who loves us. We have a queen who's Jewish. We have a prime, we have a minister who's Mordechai. And we invited, and this is Nenu Misudosoi, the pleasure was... Not only at the Seuda, the, the pleasure was that they were associating with Oisai Rasha. They were being invited and took pleasure in this. Of course, it would have been acceptable for them to go if they felt that they must. Not in a way of Nehenu. You know, the way you invited to your second cousin, Bas Mitzvah, who's six, seven years younger than you, and you really couldn't care less, but you have to go because if you don't, your grandmother is going to get a phone call from her sister and you're never going to hear the end of it. You didn't go to your second cousin bas mitzvah. So you go, right? And you sit on your phone and you can't wait to get out of here and then you go as soon as you can. You're not going to go and enjoy yourself because you don't want to be there. Imagine, the Yid would have gone to the party of Achashverosh in such a way. They don't want to be there. But they're afraid because the king said so and they, it would be an insult not to go. And they leave. No! But why Nehenu? They rejoice. They enjoy themselves. Because they enjoyed themselves, because they felt safe, they wanted to be there. They have just told the shepherd, we don't need you. So the shepherd has left their security in the hands of the wolf. 
And of course, the first thing the wolf will do once the shepherd says it's up to you is eat them. So the gzeira of Klia was a direct consequence of the Nehenu Misudo Socialoisorosho. And this doesn't have to be Shalshushan only, because if that was the feeling of the Jews throughout the kingdom, regardless of the fact that they went or didn't go to the Suda, but the feeling of being safe under the rule of Achashverosh rather than realizing we need to rely on the Eivishter. So that's why the Gzere came. And that's what makes the opinion of Talmud Rav Shimon Yochai plausible. Then the question is, how did we get rid of this Gzere? How did we cancel this Gzere? So this Gzere was canceled by the intervention of Esther, as we will see later how it applies. The Ness of Purim is different than other Nisim. In the fact that it was disguised as a political plot, as something that is completely Gashmi. By the way, this is one of the reasons why children, and I stress children, have the custom of dressing up on Purim is because the Ness itself was dressed up in nature. It was dressed up in just a political twist in response to the Xerah of Haman. So being that the nest was dressed up, so children have the custom of dressing up as well. Adults don't dress up, no. So, in a way, the fact that this nest was dressed up in a natural plot in itself, that was the response to the mistake that the Eden did. How so? What's the difference between a nest that is somewhat melubash beteva, and the nest that is clearly, obviously, lemala minateva. You know, difference between the nest of Purim and Kiras uh, Yamsuf and all the nisim of Yitzhak Mitzayim. The difference is that in a nest in which the nature is completely overtaken by the Eivishter, in a way in which Hashem stops the nature, it shows that Hashem is very, very strong. But it doesn't show how nature and Gashmi Sa'ilom itself is the Eivishter. By having a nest that is a Shidu Dateva, it gives the impression that there is nature and there is Hashem. Those are two distinct things. And the Eivishter is stronger than nature and therefore he could force himself on nature. He could force his plan on nature. But when the nest comes dressed up in Teva, it actually shows that nature itself is also the Eivishter. The whole idea of Enoid Milvadoi, meaning that it's not that there is the nature and Hashem will tell nature what to do, but nature itself is the Eivishter. How do you see that? You see that in a nest in which the same Achashverosh who wrote, who told Haman, do whatever you want with these people, is the same Achashverosh who then said to Molchah and Esther, you write about the Jews whatever you find you find right. That transformation of nature itself. Life of Yidin and the existence and survival of Yidin is something that is permeated with, with miracles, with wonders. The whole existence of Kali Yisrael, the whole survival of Kali Yisrael is a nest. 
As I mentioned before, all the other nations have uh, perished, all the other religions and, and, and civilizations as old as us has perished, and yet we continue doing the same Torah mitzvahs the way we did since Mamad al-Sinai, 3,328 years ago, with absolutely no change. Even though we are the nation that has been the most persecuted. The fact is that the very existence of Kali Yisrael started with the Ness, a hundred-year-old man giving birth to a child, and ever since then continued with being completely a Ness. The very nature of Yidin is something that is Nisi, that is miraculous. That is also expressed in the fact that the Ness of Purim was a Ness that was, that, that was the very nature of the Ness, was in fact a political plot, being at the right place at the right time, the right person, being the queen and the Mordechai being involved and so on. This shows that nature itself is all the Ebeshter. We see that also in Esther's intervention. Before going to Ahasuerus, Esther fasted for three days. And then she went to the king. This seems to be two opposite things over here. In the one hand, if you're relying on the Eivishter, and that's why you're fasting, and that's why you're davening, so then why bother going to the king? Oh, you need to make a keli. So if you need to make a keli and you're relying on the king, going to the king was also a danger because he might not be interested in, in paying attention to you. So then try to do everything for three days before going to the king. Make yourself look presentable that the king will be interested in talking to you. Instead of that, She's fasting for three days. Fasting for three days is not going to give her the appearance that will be interesting to the king. So then she doesn't really care about the king. She wants to daven. And fast, she's relying on the Abishas. Then why go to the king? What she did was exactly what was necessary to be done to offset the Yidin's mistake before. What we said their mistake was, and the natural consequence for losing the protection of the Abishas, is that they put their trust entirely in the king. They felt safe and comfortable under the king. So Esther needed to show exactly the opposite. Putting her trust entirely in the Ebeshter. She has to go to the king because she needs to make a keli. So she goes without the koch, without the hanno. She goes after three days of fast. Exactly the way the Yidin should have gone to the Suda. If they felt they needed to go to the Suda, they could have gone but without the Nehenu Misudasa Shalei They should have gone in a way in which they go as they feel forced to go, without any Anoa, as I described it earlier. But going with the whole entire Koch, as they did, that, would be, that is comparable to what if Esther would have gone for three days preparing herself to go to the king. Begashmias, by making yourself pretty and so on. What Esther did was exactly the opposite. The Iker was knowing that the shepherd is the one who's protecting her, protecting the Yidin. So therefore, going to the king was only a keli. So it's done without eagerness, without koch, without tainuk, without nehenu. This is exactly the response to offset exactly the opposite of what they have done, putting the whole trust into Achashverosh rather than into the Eivishter. The Mishnah tells us, Whoever reads the Megillah backwards is not Yetzeh. 
the, the, the meaning of this halacha is that if somebody comes late to shul, and by the time he got to shul, they're already in the second half of the Megillah, he hears the second half, then he stays for the next minion, and he hears the first half. By now he's heard the whole Megillah. Is he yaitza or not? No. The Megillah has to be read in order. Whoever reads the Megillah backwards is not yaitza. The Baal Shem Tov explains about this, this meaning, the inner meaning of the halacha, is that whoever reads the Megillah and looks at it as something, as something of the past, is not yaitza, he missed the whole point of Purim. The whole point of Purim is that by, by remembering the days of Purim, you are actually reapplying them as if it's something of the present. So the message of the Megillah and the message of the whole story Bichlal, including the Yidden's mistake of Nenu Misudasa and the response to it of Esther, which is going to the king only after fasting for three days, has to be a hero for us as well. It cannot be left as lemafreya, something of the past. Because if this is it, this is the way it's looked at, we just miss the whole point of Purim. So therefore, how do we live with this message of their mistake and Esther's response? So the hero for us in today's time and in our everyday life is what we have to learn from Esther's, from Esther's intervention. Firstly, we think that we make money and we make parnasa because of our effort, because of our business savvy, because of good opportunities and so on. But the truth is that the Ashiris comes from the Ebishter, Brikas Hashem Asher. So why do we have to work if the parnasa is coming from the Ebishter? We have to make a keli. We've learned before in the story of Abba and his wife, Davening, that being that the source of the parnasa is the Ebishter, and is giving us this parnasa in the schus of our tzedakah that we give, the chinuch of our children, and so on, as we have discussed then, we have to realize that our kocha enthusiasm has to be put in the right place, into the source where the parnasa is coming, rather than into the keli. In the same way that Esther went to the king, her going to the king was the tofel, her fasting and davening was the ikel, and when she went to the king, she did it, Without any, without any koch, being that it was secondary, in the same way in gaining our parnasa. That our parnasa comes with the ikir and the tafel. The ikir is what we do, the ruchnius, in order to bring about a parnasa. The tafel is what we do by going to work, which is just making a keli. So therefore, our whole head, our enthusiasm, the whole koch has to be in the Iker rather in the Tafel, just like Esther did when she went to Achashverosh. The same we find about our Guf, our Neshama. The Iker is, a, is our Neshama, the Tafel is our Guf. Our Guf is here only to serve our, our Neshama. And our Guf comes with needs. In order for the Guf to survive, it needs to eat, it needs to sleep. The Neshama also comes with needs. In order for the Neshama to fulfill its Tachlis, it needs to be involved in Torah mitzvahs. He needs to take himself uh, not to be allowed to be covered up by the consequences of Taivas Tanugyaoilam. So we have to think about it. What is the Iker? What is the Tafel in our life? The Neshama is the Iker. The Guf is the Tafel. So therefore, caring for our Guf has to be done out of necessity and without the Koch, without the Nehenu. 
The emphasis should be nourishing the, the neshama. How does that fit in with the story of Nenu Misudasa Shalaisa As I mentioned before, the mistake of the Eden that time was that they felt they needed to go to the king, and being that it was necessary to go to the Sudasa Shalaisa Rasha, that's where they put the whole Koch Nehenu. It wasn't done in a way in which it was done, in, in which they went because they felt obligated to go. They went in the way of Nehenu. That was their mistake. The Yeshua came from Esther showing exactly the opposite. So how do you apply this to our goof versus neshama? Is that indeed it is true that you have to feed your goof, you have to take care of the needs of your goof. But this has to be done in a way that the Eden should have gone to the party if they felt they had to go to. Which means without any tainuk, without any great enthusiasm, without the nehenu. You have to go to Sudasa Shalaisa Rasha, you have to go and feed your goof and your nefesh abahamis. Feed it. But without the Nehenu, where is the Nehenu, the Geshmak has to be in feeding your Neshama? Exactly like what Esther did, that her greatest effort was put into the Ruchnizdike aspect of her intervention, which is fasting and davening.